And so today, Paul is going to tell us about one of these blessings, the really big blessing. This blessing is the foundation of our faith. It is the foundation of our relationship with God, and it becomes the foundation of all of our relationships with each other in the church, and it is the word of the day. I guess I am supposed to put on this t-shirt. We'll see if it fits. I have been working out, so we'll see. Well, it's extra large. It is the word grace. Is this my color? Like, is this a good color for me? I don't know if I've ever worn this color, except for maybe as a crossing guard or something at some point. It is the word, word grace. Now, before we dive into this passage, I do want to point out that in Christian theology, grace is generally divided up into two categories. Now, the first type or category of grace that we would talk about is what theologians call common grace. I call it universal grace. And common grace refers to the grace of God that is common to all mankind. You get this grace because you were born into the world. Its benefits are experienced by all of humanity. The whole human race has access to common grace without distinction. I feel really ridiculous in this shirt, but that's that's all right. Um, It's very humbling to be standing in front of... um, So common grace, there's no distinction. Believer, unbeliever, you know, one person to another. Everybody has access to common grace. Examples of common grace are God's providential care for creation. I told Dorota before we came over here, you know, hey, it's going to be nice today, 47. It's going to be sunny. We need to go outside. And I felt Like, that's something we should take advantage of. We should take advantage of God's common grace today, the goodness of the weather. And when people say, oh, the weather's nice, they feel a sense of blessing, they have an experience with God's common grace. Basically, anything good in the world that we receive is a product of of common grace. The other type of grace is known as saving grace, and that is the type of grace that we will focus on today. And it is the type of grace that Paul talks about in his writings and especially in the book of Ephesians. So the word for today really should be, I should have saving grace up here because that's what I'm going to focus on today. And Paul leads us in a discussion of saving grace in Ephesians 2. So let's look at Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3. Larry, do you still have that microphone? Would you like to read verses 1 through 3 out loud? Thank you. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. So they're having a weight loss competition at my gym downtown, you know, the new year. And um, we're about five weeks in, and they set up a Facebook page. And everybody is going on right now, and they're putting their transformation pics on Facebook, you know. 
before and after shots. Or if you've ever watched any of those diet or exercise commercials, they always have a person who was fat before and they lost weight and it's supposed to draw you in because that's what you want. You know, the before and after pictures. You know, I was 30 pounds overweight and flabby, but I got this stuff that I could sprinkle on my food. Remember, whatever happened to that stuff you sprinkle on your food, right? And now I lo- now look how good I look. And those before and after shots are effective, you know, marketing diet supplements and, and exercise uh, equipment. What Paul does here is he shows us our spiritual before picture. You could call this before saving grace. And our spiritual state before grace was ugly. U-G-L-Y. You ain't got no alibi. Ugly. Uglier than this shirt. Paul says we were dead. That doesn't sound good, right? Dead in our sin, spiritually dead. David Guzik, a commentator, writes, The most vital part of man's personality, the spirit, was dead to the most important factor in life, God. In other words, before saving grace, there really was no place for God in our lives. In this spiritual state before grace, Paul says that we followed the ways of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Who is that? Who is the ruler of the kingdom of the... You almost have to kind of like say that in a... in The ruler of the kingdom of the air. That, That sounds better, right? No? Well, who is that? Anyone? Satan, right? Satan was our our leader. He was our ruler. The Greek here literally means we were guided or directed by Satan. Now I know in our modern world, because we're sophisticated urbanites, hipsters, we think we're smart, we've been to college, it seems a little ridiculous to talk about Satan or or the devil, doesn't it? But can you deny that there is a real evil in the world? There is a force that defies kind of human explanation. There is a personification of of evil. And it's not Vladimir Putin. It goes much deeper than that, right? Paul talks about here that before saving grace, we had a spirit of disobedience. That's Satan's main influence. Because he, the Bible tells us, was a disobedient angel. And so instead of having the Holy Spirit, before saving grace, we had a spirit of disobedience. We essentially flew the middle finger to God in rebellion. We were obstinate, hard-hearted, the Bible says, towards the things of God. Oh, we might have thought we were spiritual, but we were dead. That was before grace. Paul goes on to say that in this state, we also gratified our flesh. We lived life in the flesh. We were, you know, hedonists. Looking for the next temporal thrill, the next high. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Charles Bukowski was an American poet and writer in the 1960s and 70s and 80s, and he wrote this. 
I was drawn to all the wrong things. I liked to drink. I was lazy. I didn't have a God, didn't have a politic, didn't have ideas or even ideals. I was settled into nothingness, a kind of non-being, and I accepted it. I didn't make for an interesting person. I didn't want to be interesting. It was too hard. What I really wanted was only a soft, hazy space to live in and to be left alone. On the other hand, when I got drunk, I screamed, went crazy, got all out of hand. One kind of a behavior didn't fit the other. I didn't care. And Bukowski and others have described what I would call the madness and torture of people who are trying to fulfill the desires of the sinful nature. It's a moving back and forth between pleasure and pain, and it's maddening and it's empty. The New Testament uses other ways to describe our spiritual state before grace. We were spiritually blind, 2 Corinthians 4, slaves to sin, Romans 6, lovers of darkness, John 3, sick, Mark 2, lost, Luke 15, an alien, a stranger, a foreigner, Ephesians 2, under the power of darkness, Colossians 1. And the consequences of our spiritual condition before grace was that we were objects of wrath or deserving of wrath. Like, whose wrath? God's wrath. I just mentioned, I've brought up two subjects that probably most modern people in the modern world don't like to talk about, maybe because we think we're too sophisticated. So I'm preaching like old school fundamentalist preacher. I talked about Satan and wrath, but it's not me, it's Paul who's talking about them. So I'm forced to talk about wrath. And we don't like to think about wrath in the modern church. But it's something we must address because God's anger or wrath against sin is found in the pages of the scripture and not just in, you know, the Old Testament. Because, you know, a lot of us think that, you know, it's in the Old Testament where we see a lot of wrath, but in the New Testament, we only see love as if between the Old Testament and the New Testament, God went to anger management, you know, classes. But God's wrath is actually mentioned in the New Testament. Even Jesus talked about wrath. Jesus even talked about hell more than he did heaven. And Paul's point is this. Before saving grace entered our lives, we deserved, because of our disobedience, the punishment for our sins is what we deserved, which was to be subject to the wrath of God. This does not make us innocent bystanders. This does not make us victims. And this does not make God unjust in his anger against sin. Paul implies that we freely chose this path. We intentionally chose to break our relationship with God. We had a spirit of disobedience, just like Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden, and they were separated from God. 
Galatians 6 says, The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. The word sow implies intention. So before grace, we were spiritually dead, spiritually empty, lost, objects of wrath. It's not good news. It's U-G-L-Y, you ain't got no alibi, ugly. That's the truth of what Paul is saying. It gets better, verses 4 through 7. Larry? Say it again, but. But because, there it goes, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. What I want you to particularly note about these verses is that it does not say that we in our spiritually dead state came to realize how miserable and empty our lives were and we went and we reached out to God to change our ways. We did not initiate the repairing of our relationship with God. And that is really the difference, I think, between Christianity and all other forms of religion. You know, if you went to the city of Ephesus in Paul's day, what you would see is thousands of people lining up to go into pagan temples and offer to whatever god, in this particular case in Ephesians, Artemis was the popular goddess, and they would be offering sacrifices to her, trying to appease her. But Christianity is a religion where God seeks man. Man does not seek God. All the action in verses 4 through 7 is God's action. God is acting. God is the one who initiates the reconciliation process with us. God reaches out to us. There's nothing we did to fix our situation. And why did God do this? Why did God reach out to us? Why did God act? Well, it says here, his great love. This is all because God loves us. We didn't love God. He loved us. And this is really important for us to understand Because our salvation is dependent on God and not us. We did not deserve the love. We did not deserve the mercy and grace of God. What did we deserve? Well, we were objects of wrath. We deserve the wrath of God. So God's posture towards us now is not wrath, but love. God loved us even when we were 
disobedient and in rebellion. It broke his heart to see us spiritually dead and lost in our sins, so he reached out. Do you understand that God loves you? Do you grasp how deep and wide and profound the love of God is? Romans says that he demonstrated his love by sending his son into the world to save you. Jesus Christ is the demonstration of that love. And you can't talk about grace unless you talk about God's love. And that is what Paul means here in verse 7 when he says that God expressed his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Because in the Bible, the word kindness really means his loving kindness towards us. I've told a story many times in my ministry about the Vietnam War and a young West Point cadet who was sent over to lead a group of new recruits into battle. And the young man, he was a West Point cadet, he was trained well, and so he did his job well. And one night his platoon was ambushed and a member of his platoon was certain to die. When all of a sudden, the young man saved his life. But he got caught up in the ensuing crossfire of the Viet Cong and was killed. He died while the other was saved. Months later, after the rescued, saved soldier returned to the States, that West Point cadet's parents heard that the young man was in town and wanted to meet this man whose life had been spared at such a great cost to them. And so they invited him over to dinner to meet the man whom their son had saved. And when their honored guest arrived, he came drunk. He was rowdy. He was obnoxious. He told off-color jokes. He was racist. He showed no gratitude for the sacrifice of the man who died to save him. And the grieving parents did the best they could to make the man's visit worthwhile, but their efforts went unrewarded. And their guests finally left. And as the father closed the door behind him, the mother collapsed in tears and cried to think that our precious son had to die for somebody like that. God's grace came into this world, his saving grace, because his son was willing to die for somebody like me. All my sin, my spirit of rebellion, all of my ugliness, and yet God was willing to express love and forgiveness and grace by sending his son to die for someone like me. Verses 8 through 10. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. If you ever commit to memory any three verses of Scripture, commit these to memory. Because these three verses of the heart of the Christian gospel 
if these three verses are not here, we're not here. Saving grace is at the heart of the gospel. Now, how do I define grace? It's about time I defined it since I'm wearing it on my shirt. What is saving grace? Well, here's how I think about it and how I've explained it over the years. Grace is getting a reward you didn't deserve. Now, what is the difference between grace and mercy? Because that's an important thing because Paul also says God is rich in mercy here. Well, mercy is just a little bit different than grace. Mercy is not getting a punishment you deserve. So grace is getting a reward we did not deserve. Mercy is not getting a punishment we deserved. What what did we deserve as a result of our previous lifestyle? Well, we deserved wrath, but didn't get it. That's mercy. What do we get? Salvation. That is grace. Getting the reward we did not deserve. What gift do we get as a result of grace? Well, it's the gift of salvation, eternal life. The grace of God is eternal life, Paul says elsewhere, and we don't deserve it. Now, Paul tells us a few important things about this saving grace. First, it is received through faith and not good works. You know, faith is the biblical word for trust. Notice Paul does not say it is by grace you have been saved through your religious deeds. It does not say it is by grace you have been saved through your church attendance. The only way you can receive the gift of grace is to trust God for it. To put your faith in God and not in yourself. And that is another important thing about grace. It is a gift. You know, one year I got Dorota a really nice Christmas gift. I went out, I bought her a really nice expensive gift and put it on my credit card. And I was pretty proud of this gift. The funny thing is that Dorota pays the credit card bill every month. So in 30 days, she realized something. I'm paying for my own gift, right? Fortunately with God, you don't have to pay for your gift. God does not give his gift of salvation. He does not give his grace to us and then expects us to pay him back through religious deeds. That's not how the grace system works. We don't do good works to pay for our salvation. Notice Paul does talk about good works here, but notice that good works are the result of grace. We do good works as the result of God's work in us. That's what flows out of us. What are works under the gospel? Well, they're worship. This makes your works unselfish. Because if you don't have grace, the reason you do good works is to earn something for yourself. Now you do your good works for God, for others. Grace transforms our works. It transforms our relationships with people. Our works are now unselfish. They are now holy and pleasing to God, Romans 12. 
And also, if you do your good works to earn salvation, it makes you, as Paul says here in verse 9, boastful. If you trust in your own good works, you rely on yourself and not God, you get prideful. You get spiritually arrogant. And that's sin. You get trapped in the cycle of sin. That's why Paul was so frustrated in the book of Galatians with people who had received the saving grace of God, but then were turning back to the work, their own works and were beginning to become proud and boastful of who they had become. That they had become something that was a result of their own works and not the work of God in their life. Grace is a gift. You don't pay for it. You don't earn it. You receive it through faith. You trust not yourself, but God. Do you know that you don't have to earn your salvation? You don't have to pay for it. Do you really know that? How do you relate to God on a daily basis? Are you still trying to earn your salvation, earn God's approval, right? He already approves of you. You know why? Because he approved of Jesus. You know, there's an old saying that there's no such thing as a free lunch. It costs something. That's like one of the first principles of economics. This grace is a gift, but it costs something. We sang about it. All three of the songs we sang today illustrated this. It cost the life of God's son. Our sin could not go unpaid. It had to be paid for. But we could not pay it on our own. That old hymn says Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. All. To him I owe. You know that wrath that we deserved? Jesus took that wrath so that we could receive grace. We like the cross, don't we? People take a cross and they have now, they make it into a necklace or they will tattoo that cross or my church in Ellesmere, Kentucky, we have crosses in each of the stained glass windows. They're so beautiful. But do you not understand the cross is in, was an instrument of Roman torture? We, we don't wear uh, uh, electric chairs around our necklace. Why does the cross become a symbol of love? Because in that Roman execution act, Christ took on the wrath of God. So when we celebrate the cross at communion, we not only celebrate the love of God, but we celebrate the wrath of God that was satisfied at the cross. I think this truth that we've been talking about today, this powerful truth of saving grace is evident in one of the most beloved songs. I've not heard anybody say, I don't like this song. You know what the title of the song is? It's called Face Review and Expectation. Don't you love that song? Face Review and Expectation. 
Anyone? It's my, one of my favorite songs. That song, Face Review and Expectation, was written by a man named John Newton. A terrible man. A drunk. A slave trader. Who in a moment of desperation received saving grace and became a preacher. An abolitionist. And a hymn writer. Oh, uh, you know Face Review and Expectation by another name. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Do you see the before grace there? You see the after grace? Before grace, I was a wretch. Lost. After grace, found. Now I see. Let's pray and then I'll ask David to come up and close us out. Dear God, we are thankful for the reminder of what we were before grace and now what we are after grace. And for the reminder that we don't have to earn our way into a relationship with you. We don't have to pay for salvation. We have to receive it as a gift. And we celebrate it as a gift. It transforms our lives. And Lord, my prayer is that this week in our lives, we may exemplify your grace in our relationships to others. That if somebody in our life needs grace that we will exemplify the grace of the cross to them in the midst of that relationship. And I pray for Echo Church that people will know this church because people here live by grace, that they'll be attracted to this place because the blessing of God's grace is evident in this church. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.